Welcome. I'm Eric Fleming, host of A Moment with Eric Fleming, the podcast of our time. I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then I need you to do a few things. First, I need subscribers. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming. Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show. Second, leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast. Encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And I am excited today for a couple of reasons. One, I have a guest. I'm always excited when I have a guest. And then two, Donald Trump was booked in at the Fulton County Jail last week. Yep, he got booked in. So I want to talk a little bit about that and what the expectations are on on where that case is, right? So before I introduce my guest, though, uh, I do want to make an announcement that the first mini moment with Eric Fleming has dropped on Patreon. So, you know, I've been asking y'all to subscribe uh, to the podcast on Patreon. And I believe if you go to patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming podcast, you'll be able to hit that link and go ahead and listen to the first mini moment. The first mini moment, I talk about the tragic untimely death of Lori Carlton as the lady that owned the store out in California that got gunned down by somebody that was offended by her pride flag. So I didn't think I would have any time to, to do it timely on this podcast, but uh, I did do a mini moment. So if you want to hear that or any other mini moments that will be coming up in the future, go ahead and, and subscribe. Uh, I have several tiers, but if you just want to listen to the mini moments, it's only a dollar a month. That's all I'm asking. And even Patreon was like, why only a dollar a month? I said, because I want people to subscribe. So yeah, just a dollar a month and you can get all the mini moments. If you decide to give a little more, you know, in any of the other tiers, then you'll get stuff. 
uh, you know, some some nice little mementos. Just show some appreciation for y'all subscribing. Anyway, but uh, please do that because I'm going to do a lot of those many moments. Like I said, if I get into a situation, <clears throat> excuse me, if I have an uh, episode full of guests, I won't really have time to delve into some things that may happen uh, that will you know, in a timely fashion, since we only do the show once a week. Uh, and then, of course, if we get into a situation where we have a whole bunch of guests, you know, then we'll have bonus episodes along with that. But um, that'll be free, the bonus episodes, because I want everybody to be able to hear the interviews. But the many moments will be commentary that I wouldn't have time or wouldn't be in a timely fashion uh, to uh, to give on a weekly podcast, right? So, having said all that, let me go ahead and, and um, introduce my guest for this episode. Her name is Ajar Yazdiha. And uh, she has written a book called The Struggle for the People's King. And I just I just really, before I get into the formal introduction, because it's really not that long, uh, I just want to say that y'all need to get this book. Uh, it has a very unique perspective about how people perceive the civil rights movement. It's very scholarly, very in-depth as far as the research and the articulation. Uh, and it's it's a perspective I never even really put much thought into. And we'll get into that in the interview. Uh, but, yeah, I, I encourage y'all to get the book. So, again, her name is Hajar Yazdiha, and she is an assistant professor of sociology and an affiliate of the Equity Research Institute at the University of Southern California, where she researches the politics of inclusion and exclusion. She is the author of the book, The Struggle for the People's King. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct honor and privilege to have on this podcast, Hajar Yazdia. All right, Professor Hajar Yasidaha. Did I say that right? So close. It's Yazdiha. Diha. Okay, I got. What did I say? D. Okay. Diha. <laughs> got you. All right. So, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm glad that you were able to take some time from getting these young minds ready for the fall semester to come on and talk. Thank you so much for having me. I love your show. So I'm so excited. Well, thank you. Um, so as you know, if I can find a quote that either something that you said or something that contains the essence of your work, I, I'll try to throw it out there and then let you respond to it. So I pulled this quote uh, 
from your book, and uh, it's from Martin Luther King. And it says, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to work to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. You must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always right to do right. What, what is the essence or meaning of that quote to you and your work? Yes, I mean, that. every time I hear that quote, it gives me chills because there are so many layers there and Dr. King is so prescient. It's like he he's seeing into the future and he is seeing the way that his own words are going to get co-opted and used against the very fight that he's in in that moment. And so, I mean, that that is exactly the essence of my book. My book is thinking about how Dr. King's memory gets co-opted and remade and used in the service of all sorts of different political projects. And that in doing so, it has all of these consequences for multicultural democracy and specifically dismantling it just right under our noses by using his name and his words and his symbol. So, you know, in the book, it's like, I'm thinking about time, not just in the common way that we think about it, like, like a, talk, a clock that's ticking, but I'm thinking about it in terms of a symbol. So the past becomes this really powerful political object. So we're using the past to make claims in the present so we can shape the future. And unfortunately, it's getting used in all of these really sinister ways. Right, and I'm gonna address that in, a, in another question, but the first question I wanted to ask you, and I think you kind of started on it, is why was it important for you to write this book at this time in our nation's history? Yes, so what's really interesting is I started writing this book as a graduate student working on my dissertation, and I'm sitting there and I'm a, I'm a scholar of social movements and race and immigration. And I'm, I'm sitting there just kind of observing politics. And this is a moment when Abigail Fisher is taking affirmative action to the Supreme Court to repeal it. And if your listeners don't remember, Abigail Fisher is, and this is kind of objective at this point, this is not a judgment. She is a mediocre white girl. So she does not have amazing grades, but she is claiming that she was rejected from the University of Texas at Austin, because she is not black or brown. And the case goes to the Supreme Court. And what I find completely shocking in that moment is the way Dr. King's words are getting invoked to claim that he would not stand for affirmative action, that he believed in a colorblind nation and that we are dishonoring him by keeping affirmative action as a matter of the law. And of course, as we know, you know, the the repeal does not happen, right? But then it begins to build and we end up in the present moment when instead they decide to use an Asian student as the face of the of the repeal. And 
it works, right? And so it's sort of that progression. And the, the story of the book is really about how is it that Dr. King's words can be used in such egregious ways that run so counter to his legacy? How do those co-optations take place? And so it really tells us the story of 40 years of political uses and misuses of Dr. King's memory and then why they matter. So the consequences that they have, because I think it's so easy, like nowadays, you know, even like any kind of press conference with the Republican Party at this point, they're going to invoke Dr. King to claim that, you know, he didn't believe in X, Y, Z, anything that has to do with actually recognizing and working toward amending racial injustice. And at this point, it's so taken for granted that I think we forget it's more than just a rhetorical flub, right? It's not just like an oops, wow, they, they really don't know their history. This is an intentional political strategy. And when you actually go back and look at the history, which I really lay out in the book, you find that this has been building since the 80s, that this was really Reagan's project to begin with, and that it has had really deep consequences. And that... that goes into my my next question which is um wait a minute i just passed it or maybe i took it out i don't know oh here it is when dr king died well and, and before i even ask the question I, I can't pass up this this irony right so you mentioned about abigail fisher at the university of texas and the university of texas address is martin luther king drive in austin so I just oh I didn't even know that right wow. it's, it's like it, it threw me for a loop when I went to visit Austin and it was like Martin Luther King Drive and poof there's the university and there's the oil well and all that stuff so wow. I think that's kind of ironic but the question I was going to ask is when Dr King died he was the most unpopular man in America right that's right but now conservatives like Ted Cruz Marjorie Taylor Greene and Marsha Blackburn are quoting him. What do you think the conservative political strategy is for doing that? And how can black African-American activists reclaim that narrative? Yes. I mean, that's, that's like a multi-part question. So I'm like, how much time do you have? <laughs> but let me just be right. So let me start with the historical piece, because I think it really lays out why we see this so prevalent. You know, the strategy is everywhere right now. And like I said, every single Republican press conference, I mean, truly, there was this NPR report last year, and they were looking at this press conference that was about the quote-unquote threat of critical race theory, and over half of the Republicans in that press conference quoted Dr. King. And so they were using his words to really play up the threat of having racial education in our schools. And just, you know, it's so ridiculous, just even at face value, that it just makes you want to shake your head and just throw it all away but it's been incredibly powerful and effective. And so I think that really gets to the heart of your question. So I think what you have to do is you have to go back to the making of the King holiday and the debates that are unrolling in the early eighties. And you have a chapter all about this in the book. And you look at what president Reagan is doing because he is a guy who has never liked Dr. King. He does not support civil rights. And he's been vocal about that. And the political pressure builds where it begins to feel like he kind of needs to sign this holiday into law if he wants to get the white moderates on his side. And he's not even bothering, you know, with getting the black vote. He kind of knows that that's out of his purview and he really doesn't care about it. But he does need to woo the white moderates and show that he is not a racist, you know, that he can he can make the King holiday law, that he can tie his legacy to Dr. King's. 
But what he does is behind closed doors, he's very specific that they are going to be remembering a selective version of Dr. King. So they are going to defang him. They're going to take out all of the radical systemic critique that Dr. King had at the heart of his political activism. They're going to take out the economic critique, the critique of American imperialism, and even the deep systemic critique of racism. And they are going to use him as a symbol of American individualism, of look what one person can do when they pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They are going to use him as a symbol of the free market, of American promise, of American exceptionalism, that this is a great nation, and that Dr. King's legacy marks the end of the dark period of racism. And as Reagan says, he has lifted this great burden from this nation. So now we're good, right? So now racism no longer exists. And by telling that very selective story, he basically sets the stage for right-wing activists, and at this point, really just conservative activists, to use Dr. King as a symbol of colorblindness. And so basically that thwarts any critiques that racism still exists. Anytime folks want to talk about racism, they themselves can be called the racist. And over time, it becomes a way to use King's memory to claim that white people are the new minorities, that they are now the ones under threat. And so when you think about uh, a theory and an ideology as scary as great replacement theory, this theory that's been espoused by folks on Fox News, the idea that white people are being replaced and that black and brown people actually forge this kind of existential threat to them. Well, now you know where it's rooted, right? It doesn't come out of nowhere and it isn't just a reaction to Obama's presidency, although that obviously exacerbates it, but it goes all the way back to this original strategy where the gains of the civil rights movement become framed as threats to white people. And so Dr. King becomes this pawn that gets used in the service of rolling back the very things that he fought for. So there's a couple of phrases that you've introduced in the, in the lexicon through your book. And um, I think this would be a good time to ask for a definition of one of them. And that mm-hmm. is rivaling uses of memory. Explain what, that is because I, I th- if if I'm correct, I think that's the general gist of what you were trying to convey is that how we look at Dr. King, all these different movements in the, in in the country, how we looked at the civil rights movement, and how we memorize or how we tell the story. So just kind of explain to to the listeners what you mean by rivaling uses of memory. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm glad you drew that that piece out because it is really critical. So I talk about Dr. King's memory as a collective memory. And a collective memory is fundamentally a process of storytelling. And so so often we think of a collective memory as the same thing as history, but it's quite distinct because history is a process that is scientific in nature. It involves, you know, putting things in textbooks in the formal record. It involves a process of peer review at certain points, which is not to say that history is necessarily accurate. We have seen that history actually is always contested. There are always stories that don't make it into the record. But collective memory is a much more dynamic process. And so it's ongoing. It's not a thing that's kind of 
created and then remains static over time. It is a social and political process, and it ends up being the story that lives in our collective consciousness. And so it's the story of who we are as a people. And that's why it has so much power, because who we are really shapes who we're going to be, since it, it directs action. So collective memory of Dr. King um, is a kind of political tool because it does end up holding this uh, really powerful role in the story of who we are, since it does signal the end of a pre-civil rights era. And it's really the, the kind of central story of America's redemption, of America's rebirth. So because it holds all this power, it becomes this tool that all sorts of groups are fighting over. And this is where these rivaling uses of memory come in. And one of the things I talk about is how social movements are never existing in a vacuum, right? So when you think about the Black civil rights activists that worked so hard to you know, push for the King holiday, to really centralize the role of Black Americans in American history, you can even think about the 1619 Project in present day, for example, you have to think about the groups that are then coming and countering those claims. Those are the rival groups. And so there's always this process of contestation, of conflict over collective memory and the story that we're going to tell about who we were, because that tells us who we are right now and who we're going to be. So I think one of the, the big claims that I make, and I really show with great detail, you know, if you've read the book, there's a lot of going into the nitty gritty of these moments of contestation, is that through the rivaling uses of memory, you end up with these alt histories. And so these are these revisionist histories of things that never happened. And this is the story of Dr. King as the guy who was, you know, so committed to love and nonviolence that now people claim that he would have opposed Black Lives Matter marching down the highway, as if Dr. King and the civil rights movement never did that. So these alt histories end up being the, the stories that become mainstream because they are the ones that are held by those in power. They are the ones that are committed to reproducing power. And it's really the stories from below, the stories of Black resistance, the reclaiming of King. That's what's really at the forefront of the, you know, countering, rivaling, and ultimately, I hope, you know, having some sort of effect on repealing that revisionist history. It actually goes back to the old question you asked, you know, I didn't get to it. But the question of what do we do, I think is the question of what folks have been doing all along, right? Black communities are the ones that we have to thank for holding those histories in their families, through their communities, through their storytelling. The stories of American resistance are rooted in Black resistance. So it's not that the revisionist history is the only story that's been ongoing this whole time. It's really that that's the story that's had the power behind it. And the power from below is also a story that I think we ought to be telling. So this is flowing pretty good. Um, it seems like the questions I was thinking of are falling right on point. <laughs> um, so let's play with that about the accurate telling. Do you think that there is a certain mythology attached to the civil rights movement? And if you do, how has that been detrimental to modern day organizing? Yes. Oh, that's a great question. There has absolutely been a mythology. And part of it was the political project of just defanging the movement and its legacy. Because if folks were to know, you know, for example, just how radical some of these strategies were, 
the fact that these strategies were rooted in a project of disruption, of disrupting the status quo, of putting sand in the gears of our everyday activities, then they would know that that's what it takes. It's much easier to say, oh, well, they were just, you know, really nice and respectable and they wore suits and, you know, by being kind of nice and meek, they got what they wanted. Like, isn't that a beautiful story? And this is how power re reproduces itself, right? It, it makes sure that it's kind of co-opting and taking the power out of these movements by kind of folding them into this conception that the civil rights movement really wasn't particularly radical. And part of that telling has been positioning them in opposition to, for example, the Black Panthers. So part of the story is that, you know, the civil rights movement did it the quote unquote right way compared to those crazy Panthers. And of course, anybody who studied this history knows that there was a lot of sort of intertwined work, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of internal reckoning that was going on within both of those movements and thinking about who they wanted to be and how they wanted to do their work. And I think that's the piece that really gets lost. I do think out of Black Lives Matter, there's been an incredible movement called Reclaim King. Um, you know, every King holiday, they engage in a series of, you know, mass actions that are really rooted in thinking about these systems that still exist, whether it's mass incarceration or these imperial projects. And it's a way to take King's memory and really pick up those threads that have been whitewashed and sanitized and remind us that his work is unfinished, one, but then two, to also really pick up the, the work of the unsung heroes, the Black women, the queer folk, the folk that were so central in the civil rights movement, but whose stories were written out of the record so that it's so easy to just look back at the movement as if it was just this one great man who, yes, happened to be incredibly charismatic, who really was a kind of spiritual leader in a moral compass, but who was not the only one and also had a wide team behind him. So that's really part of it is, is writing the complexity back into the record. Because one of the things I talk about is how our belonging in the future is contingent on writing our existence into the past. So we have to actually claim a stake in these histories. We have to remind folks that these are not new strategies. You know, Black Lives Matter you know, marching down a highway or it disrupting the status quo, disrupting the way that everyday business is proceeding. That is not new. That is rooted in the Black freedom struggle. And so there's a whole legacy there. Right. And so that reminds me, there's my two favorite pictures of Dr. King are one, I have, I have one where he's in a phone booth and he's sitting there and he's got shades on and he's talking on the phone. And that was like when he was calling people like Harry Belafonte or somebody like that to, to get some money. Right. Mm -hmm. And then my other favorite picture, I think is my, out of all the pictures is him with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth about to knock this eight ball in on a pool table. And all these guys are around. And the story behind that is that that's how he recruited people to show up at meetings. He literally was a pool shark. He developed a skill, I think, at Morehouse. And he would basically walk into a bar and tell people, I need you to come to a meeting. And they'd be like, whatever. And then he'd say, all right, if I can beat your best pool player, then we can, you know, I expect y'all to be there. And sure enough, somebody's a sucker and says, oh, yeah, preacher, I got you. And he, <laughs> he'll run the table on them. And he says, I'll see y'all Saturday. You know what I'm saying? At the meeting. 
love that. And so, I mean, you know, when you paint this picture of Dr. King as this, like you said, charismatic leader, this great order, you know, they minimize how much of a strategist he was, how much of a community organizer he was, how much of a just ordinary person he was. Yeah. And, 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 and then you talk about the influence of other folks. I mean, I, I, by virtue of my position, you know, I've gotten to meet people like John Lewis and James Bevel oh. and James Orange and uh, Joseph Lowry and uh, Sister Robinson in, 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 in Selma. And, um, you know, it, it was just, it, it was amazing. But the, you know, I think about Baird Rustin, how they mm -hmm. literally had to smuggle this man because he was of the LGBTQ community. And they had mm -hmm. to smuggle this man in so he could help organize different events. And then just the, the power meetings that him and uh, Roy Wilkins and, and, and Whitney, all these guys would just sit down and, and talk about what are next steps? You know, yeah. who's going to do what? And when you put a mythology behind it, then it just seems like, well, he just showed up at, at Dexter Street Baptist Church and started talking and everybody decided they're going to boycott buses. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. It, 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 there's work involved. And, and that in, in part of my work in dealing with uh, activists and, and trying to encourage them and all this, especially the younger ones, is that this is not going to be easy. And you're going to have to pull people in and you're going to have to educate people. Right. But anyway, this is not about me. This is about you. So. Let me let me get back to Well, no, 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 but let me just pop in really quick because what you're saying resonates so deeply and I think, you know, part of it is that the story of social progress in America and frankly globally has never been linear, you know, and I think that's a misconception is folks really want like a quick win. They want to see it not only in their lifetime, they want to see it within a year, right? And so there is this kind of impatience that makes it really hard to persist. It's a lot easier to burn out when you actually think you're going to have these wins kind of taking place quickly. I think especially with white allies and you know non-black allies, some of the frustration comes because they want their accolades. They want folks to applaud them for showing up. And the history of black resistance is a story of persistence, right? Against all odds and just the dedication to keep going. And what you were saying about, you know, this image of Dr. King, his complexity, the fact that he was very human, all of it's also rooted in, you know, a big piece of the legacy of the civil rights movement, the one that we should be reclaiming and lifting up, especially for young activists now, is that it is the story of community. It's the story of building relationships and spending that time on the ground, right? It's not about directly going to whoever's in power and begging them to make some changes. It's really about taking the time to connect on a human level and trying to do it across all sorts of boundaries, right? Not just class and race, but, you know, also sexuality, thinking about the questions of place, the neighborhoods that we live in, all of these different complexities that really were built in to the deep organizing work of the civil rights movement. And I'll show my students the documentary about the Freedom Riders. And they are blown away because these are these are young people their age who are putting their lives on the line for the cause. And just that level of extreme risk of extreme dedication to something larger than themselves is something that can be really hard to imagine because 
I think that urgency of now can be missing when we are flooded with information constantly, when we are made to feel so powerless, like we have no agency, because we are told day after day that there are too many fires to put out, that, you know, the system of power is too deeply entrenched, that all of it's kind of pointless at a certain point, or even that if we vote, then that's enough. But there's so much more that has to be done. You know, voting is the bare minimum, and it's certainly not enough. Amen, sister, on that. Voting is the bare minimum. Y'all hear that? Okay, all right, great. So <laughs> um, let me ask you this question. Because you, you talked about winning and people wanting instant results. Politics is defined by winners and losers in the public discourse. So who is winning the collective memory battle? Or in other words, whose collective memory seems to me the most prevailing thought in America right now? Yeah, I mean, if we're thinking about the, you know, the sort of standard definition of political winners in terms of who holds the power, who runs Congress, who, you know, controls the economy, then yes, the white folk, the top 0.1% who control media, who really are the puppeteers that are playing everyone else, they are the ones that are controlling the collective memory. And that's the collective memory that's mainstream, the stories that get told in movies and films, the ones that we read about in textbooks, you know, the National King holiday that we celebrate. They're the ones that control that story. But I think this is where it's so important to have a multidimensional definition of power. So power is not just the power to that comes from above, the power to control. It's also the power within that comes from below. And that's the power that the people carry. And that's the one that in my own work as a professor and a mentor, even as a speaker, that's the one that's so important for me to draw out is that that power is embedded within our communities. We just have to activate it. And the collective memories that have been preserved by Black communities that even have been re resurrected, right, by Black Lives Matter, they exist. They just haven't gotten that sort of main stage. They haven't been given the sort of opportunity to take over the revisionist history that's been controlling the rest of us. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. And I also, I also think it's important to point out that you know, again, it's so easy to feel helpless when that power from above is always sort of controlling the conditions around you. But I really do believe that activating the power from below means that at a certain point, it can overtake sort of little relationships, those little fractals, as Adrian Marie Brown says, they matter, they scale up over time. So you have to be committed to the vision that maybe it doesn't happen in your lifetime, but, you know, I have two small kids. And so for me, I always have that longer vision where there will be something after I'm gone. And it matters to me that that world be ideally on some sort of pathway to something better. All right. Um, so the other phrase I want you to explain, which I think is kind of an oxymoron when you think about it, but the epistemology of ignorance. Explain that to us. Yes, so this comes from the great Black philosopher, Charles W. Mills, and it's been picked up by an incredible white scholar. She's a sociologist named Jenny Mueller, and they really show how there is a culture of ignorance that gets built by power that makes it so impossible for us to understand the world around us. 
And Mueller really helps us think about it in terms of white ignorance, because that is the story that we're telling is really of the story of power, how it controls the way that we see the world. And so if you obscure inequality, if you make it really unclear why it exists, if you make it feel like it's just natural, it's part of the natural order, people aren't working hard enough, there's something wrong with their communities, you know, there's some sort of cultural pathology, then you make it impossible for anybody to understand how we move forward from it and potentially remedy it. So that story of the epistemology of ignorance is really where we become really clear on the idea that collective memory does play a powerful role in how we understand who we are and why things are the way they are. So for example, you think about the story of Dr. King as the end chapter of racism. Well, then now we look at these deep systems of inequality and we can explain them away as some sort of failing of those individuals. They just didn't work hard enough. You know, they just didn't do, an, there was a reason they ended up in prison. Um, you know, and I think that's, for me, a really helpful way to understand why we're kind of living on different planes. Because, you know, there's always like this language of polarization. Like, oh, we're just really polarized in our political beliefs. And my claim is, like, we are not polarized. We are living on different planets. And that's because of the way that the epistemology of ignorance separates us so there are those of us who have no choice, and I'm speaking specifically about Black communities, Brown communities, Indigenous, you know, even for my non-white immigrant group, those of us who have faced extreme discrimination, there are those of us that have no choice but to live firmly, firmly rooted in reality. But the epistemology of ignorance makes it so that our fellow Americans, our fellow humans are living on a different plane. They are the ones that are in power, and so there's no real impetus to emerge from that cloud. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think that is a helpful way to think about why it's so hard to talk to each other. There's always like, well, how do you talk across the divide? And I'm like, well, it's much more than the divide. It's really a fundamental difference in the realities that we're living in. All right. So we're up against it, but I, I did want to ask this question before we, we, we got off. How can we combat white backlash? In, in light of what you just explained about this epistemology of ignorance. And, and the reason why I ask this question is because it seems as though that whenever there has been movement toward progress, we get this incredible backlash that, you know, people act like they don't see is coming, and yet it always shows up, right? Um, you know, just the latest thing, we, we've been talking about Black Lives Matter. And so now the counter has been, well, we're not going to teach African-American history in the schools, or at least not at the AP level anyway. Uh, as a matter of fact, Prager U is going to show you that Frederick Douglass thought that slavery was pretty cool, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so that's all part of that. They, they always do it. And, you know, my, my biggest beef in American history as far as backlash goes is reconstruction. When African-Americans got political power in the former Confederacy and in a decade, it was all wiped out. And, mm -hmm. and okay, so, all right, that was in the 1800s and all that. Okay, folks probably weren't as politically sophisticated as they should have been, right? They were newcomers to the game. But hundreds of years later, we, we make a major achievement and all of a sudden we see this backlash. How can we 
how can we fight this? How can we, how can we, we know it's coming. How do we stop it before it gains any traction? Yeah. You know, it's an unsatisfying answer, but I believe it's the truth. I don't believe you can fight the backlash. I think that historical reckonings and reactionary backlash are bedfellows. So they really go together. You have to expect it. And then I think focus your attention elsewhere because those are the folks that we're just not going to reach. And I think accepting that actually makes for a much more nuanced and targeted politics where we're focused on the folks that we can reach and building power and community amongst them. And I think that's really what Dr. King was shooting to do, right? In the last year of his life, when he was drumming up the Poor People's Campaign, he was envisioning this multiracial coalition. He was envisioning organizing the masses from below who were really in similar situations because of economic exploitation and racial capitalism. He was making this systemic critique and he was going to reach across, not the aisle, but he was going to reach across all of these sort of constructed boundaries between us to bring the people together. And I think that's where, you know, that's where the future lies, is not thinking about the backlash, not worrying about the backlash, but instead working on a sort of offensive rather than defensive state, where we're bringing the people together. So a solidarity politics that begins within our communities, our neighborhoods, you know, listening to those that are most in need and then following their lead instead of deciding what they need. So I think that kind of grounded knowledge is so important. I think also I talk about this a lot because I'm not black and I'm not white. I think talking to our own people is so critical. So for me, you know, reaching immigrant communities like my own and really pushing for them to reckon with their own anti-blackness, the own histories that they have within that have separated them from black communities, even though there's so much linked fate embedded within them. And then I think, you know, when we just engage in sort of a daily critical and spiritual practice, when we're tapped into thinking about our deeper moral values and commitments instead of the kind of day-to-day, how am I going to get by, thinking about that larger question of how we're actually interconnected with one another, that for me is where the future lies. That's where the power lies. And I think it can be really difficult because, you know, the, the world around us is constructed to keep our heads in the clouds, to keep us focused on issues that aren't really particularly real. Um, and you know what, like when we're living in extreme poverty, then, you know, engaging in activism doesn't actually feel like a priority because we're just trying to survive. But for those of us that do have the status, the resources, and the, the political will, I think it's really critical for those of us to focus not on how do we reach the crazy backlash folks, and instead, how do we build the power from below and lift other folks up? So based on that answer, you're not of the Dan Patrick school of you can't stop them. You can only hope to contain them. You're, you're of the Michael Steele philosophy, just overwhelm them. <laughs> yes. yes. And I mean, you know, it can be both. And I think we can work on both fronts and that's probably even a better strategy is, you know, you have folks on the defensive and the offensive. But yes, for me personally, for me, that is the legacy of the civil rights movement. Okay. So how can people get the book? How can people get in touch with you if they want to discuss this further? Yeah, the book is sold everywhere books are sold. So, you know, Amazon, if you like indie bookstores, bookshop.org is fantastic for that. 
Um, and you can find me on my website. It's www.hajaryazdiha.com. And I'm also on Twitter, which I will not stop calling Twitter. It's at Haj Yazdiha and also on Instagram at Prof Hajar Yazdiha. All right. Well, Professor Hajar Yadiha. Yeah, yes, yes, Diha. Did I do better? <laughs> so much better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Professor, it's, it's been an honor to talk to you. Uh, I hope that people get the book. And uh, again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Yes, ma'am. All right, guys, and we'll catch y'all on the other side. So, what a great interview that was with Professor Yazdiha uh, uh, Hajar Yazdiha. Hajar Yazdiha. Yeah, because you know I'm 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 really particular about mispronouncing people's names because I know how I feel when. I get a check or some kind of correspondence that say Eric E R I C Flemings F L E M M I N G S. That is not my name, <laughs> but uh, and the different variations I've gotten over the years, right? Uh, so I'm sensitive about that. So I'm I, and I'm glad that she was very polite and accommodating as during the interview as I was butchering her name. Um, but I hope that you got something out of that that would encourage you to get the book and read it. Uh, Struggle for the People's King uh, talks about our collective memory, right? I mean, that's that's pretty deep to just look at how different groups of people perceive the civil rights movement different than how black people perceive it. And, you know, those are the kind of things that build understanding, right? Those are the kind of things that breaks barriers so that uh, we can communicate better and maybe end some of this political friction that's out there. And, you know, we can't get rid of all the crazies. We can't get rid of all the racists, but we can marginalize them. Uh, we can we can make them the extreme again instead of how one political party has made them the norm, right? And it'll take some collective work for us to do that, but uh, it can be done. And and part of that started. Uh, well, let me say this. Another chapter toward doing that, another step toward doing that happened on uh, August 24th here in Atlanta, in Fulton County. 
uh, when the 19, uh, well, let me say it like this. By, by Friday, August 25th, all 19 uh, defendants in the RICO case that District Attorney Fonnie Willis uh, is presenting and prosecuting, uh, they've all turned themselves in. So on the 24th, former President Donald Trump did his. He is plane landed at about 7.02 p.m. on the 24th. And um, by 8 o'clock, he was back on the plane heading to Bedminster. So, you know, it didn't take long. Uh, he had to pay $20,000 cash. Uh, they went with a bonding company out of Lawrenceville, Georgia. And I'm like, really? Y'all didn't, <laughs> none of the Atlanta folks could handle that? Uh, bail bonds office like literally across the street. <laughs> but they went with a company in Lawrenceville, Georgia. So they have that distinction of being holding the bond for former president of the United States. So that was a uh, twenty. That's twenty thousand dollars he had to pay in cash, uh, of a two hundred thousand dollar bond for the thirteen charges that he has. So, you know, he has now gone through his fourth indictment, uh, his fourth booking. And, you know, for the other people, uh, this is really their first or maybe for some of them their second. I know this one guy, uh, the only black male out of the 19, uh, Harrison Ford, I believe it is, or something. No, let me, let me not say Harrison Ford because that's the actor. Uh, I have to look up his name again but um, he is uh, he had to stay because he had a a charge he wasn't given bond because he had actually assaulted FBI agents uh, when he got arrested for something else so uh, he wasn't offered bond here in Georgia because of that. Uh, so, you know, uh, and then some of the other folks who came in late, there was a question about how long they had to stay because there wasn't a bond deal initially arranged for them. Um, but, you know, they've, they've all gone through the process anyway. So, I don't expect any of them to to be here for the duration uh, whenever the trial starts. Now, an interesting development happened uh, where one of the defendants, uh, Kenneth Cheesebro, uh, wanted to exercise his right for a speedy trial. And District Attorney Willis said yes. And the judge, uh, Scott McAfee, said, fine. 
So he will go on trial October 23rd. Now, of course, uh, the district attorney went ahead and said, well, the other 18 can join you. I'm ready. So, you know, everybody can start October 23rd as far as I'm current concerned. Of course, Donald Trump is not on board with that. Neither is Mark Meadows. Meadows is trying to get out of it altogether and get it moved to federal court where hopefully that he can have a motion to say that he's going to be dismissed from the case because he's making argument that he was just doing his job. <laughs> he was just performing his official duty as chief of staff committing a crime, right? So that's going to be his argument in court. That's why he wants to move it to a federal venue uh, to be able to make that argument. Um, and we'll see how that goes, right? Um, so here's where we are in the process just for Georgia. This is a RICO case. So we talked about, you know, RICO a little bit on this podcast, but it's going to take a minute because while the district attorney is dealing with Donald Trump and his friends, there's a RICO case going on right now with Young Thug here in Atlanta. And so that trial is still in its infancy stage. When I say infancy, meaning the jury selection and all that. So in the middle of that Young Thug RICO case, she's created another one for Donald Trump and his friends. So uh, this is a woman who ascribes to the theory walking and chewing gum at the same time, right? And, uh, you know, I don't, I couldn't think of a better person f suited to handle that at this given time here in Fulton County. So uh, I don't want people to get anxious. I don't want them to get skeptical, but I don't want them to get anxious, right? This, this is going to be a drawn-out process because the October, if, if, if the case could happen on October 23rd, that would be incredible, right? Uh, but uh, I'm not really banking on that happening. Uh, most of the legal scholars I've been watching on, on the different television networks kind of agree with that. Uh, but the way things are going... Don't be surprised if all 19 of them are in a courtroom at the same time. Uh, but it also, it really just sends a message strategically from, from her office saying, I'm ready to try this case tomorrow, if need be. Uh, and, you know, I think 60, 60, 70 days is long enough for you to, get your act together and get all the discovery and, and everything that y'all need to, to, to put up a proper defense because she's ready to go. And obviously Kenneth Cheesebro has made the decision that he's ready to get it over with one way or the other. 
So, you know, if that happens, that would be a huge victory for the prosecution. But more than likely, that's not going to happen. And it's also very unlikely, again, that all 19 will be in the courtroom at the same time. You know, people are going to start making deals. And and part of saying, okay, well, I'm ready to go on October 23rd means that if you're going to flip, you need to make up your mind right now. You need to go ahead and make that commitment if you're going to do that. If not, I'll see you in court if they if the judge doesn't push it back. So we'll see how all that plays out. I think that it'll be it'll be interesting. You know, I you know, the other timetable we're looking at was like March of next year. So I would kind of try to lean toward that more so than than October of this year, but again, if we can get it started in October, that would be awesome. Because I think the American people need to know if they're going to be voting for, you know, not just somebody that's been indicted, but somebody that's been convicted, right? I think the American people need to make an intelligent decision if they want Donald Trump to be one of the two candidates running for president, you need to know if he's a convicted felon or not. And if he is, do you want a convicted felon in the White House? Now, worst case scenario, he could only serve one term, right? Well, no, actually, I think he can serve eight years. I have to go back and look at that. He might can only serve one term because he's already served one term as president, and I don't think, I think eight years is the cap. Because I'm trying to, uh, Grover Cleveland kind of did the stagger thing where he was president one term, lost election, sat out of term, and came back and won again. And then he didn't run for re-election after he won it again. So, And that was prior to you know Franklin Roosevelt. So it wasn't anything set in stone back then. Uh, so I don't know. You know, it's... Um, well, let's just say worst case scenario, he gets in for four years. So you can have a convicted felon as president of the United States for four years, right? Plus, the other trials will still be either going on or about to be finished. So it may be more than one conviction that you're dealing with. But, you know, that's entirely up to you. I just know how much of a hassle it was just to get people who were convicted to get their voting rights back and then turn around and there's a possibility that a convicted felon could actually be president. Interesting. I think that would definitely change some of the conversations about restoring voting rights to people. That's just me. So anyway, uh, and then the other reason why the Georgia case is so important is because 
if he gets in, he can't pardon himself, uh, and nor can a Republican governor of the state of Georgia pardon him. Uh, the way the rule is in Georgia, the law is set up that you have to have served your time. And then the parole board will have to make a recommendation to the governor for you to be pardoned. So uh, that that avenue is out. But now here's the other thing. So. This past legislative session, the Republican majority in the House and the Senate and Governor Kemp signed it. Um, they passed a law saying that they, they wanted to create a commission to oversee the district attorneys of the state. And if those district attorneys you know, acted outside of the law in in any f form during, in their capacity as district attorney, then that commission could have them removed, right? So needless to say, now there's nothing that District Attorney Willis has done outside of her job. She has presented evidence to a grand jury. The grand jury has come back with a true bill indictment. Uh, and 19 people were indicted, including Donald Trump. And she has been basically following the procedure. Uh, the only issue came up was when she wanted to subpoena in the special grand jury to investigate all this stuff before she presented it to the uh, regular grand jury. Uh, she couldn't subpoena Butch Jones, who was the uh, he was the candidate for lieutenant governor at the time. Now he is lieutenant governor. She couldn't do that because she had done a fundraiser for his opponent. So the judge didn't allow her to subpoena him, but everybody else, including Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger, they all had to show up. Even Lindsey Graham, the U.S. Senator from South Carolina, had to show up. Uh, and but but Jones was a person of interest because he was one of those fake electors that was set up, and he really was the only Trump-supported guy that got a major position. Uh, this past election because Trump had opponents against Brian Kemp and Raffensperger in the primaries and they beat him handily. So, um, you know, it's, it's a situation where uh, Willis has done everything that she's supposed to do and she's, you know, done it by the book. You know, whether she gets a conviction or not, that's up to a jury of Mr. Trump and his other 18 friends' peers. But, you know, uh, needless to say, as predictable as it is, once they presented that law, 
we knew the intention was Donald Trump. But of course, they probably said, no, 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 we're not trying to protect Donald Trump or anybody. We just decided we wanted to pass this law to, you know, hold DAs accountable. Now, DAs are not appointed. They're elected. So there is a level of accountability. That's how Ms. Willis got in there. She beat the first black DA Fulton County ever had. He had been there for two decades. So after two decades, the people decided it was time for a change. They held him accountable. So they have that same power now. But Republicans like to take authority away from voters, especially voters that look like black folks. If, you know, we, we've seen it in Michigan. That's why people in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, have contaminated water because white Republicans got rid of black elected officials, took over the city, and then went on the cheap route to provide water, drinking water for the citizens of Flint, and people got sick and died. Right now in Houston, Texas, we just had the ladies uh, on the podcast talking about the library situation. That was a Republican takeover of a school district. Now, they stuck a blackface in there, but he's carrying out, he wants to close libraries and make them giant detention centers. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, and so all the board members that were duly elected on the Houston Independent School District were booted out. So basically just took away the rights of the voters in Houston. It happened in Detroit. They took over the city, right? So, again, I know people... You know, they're saying, well, you know, that's that's not a fair assessment of all that. It's like, again, you are entitled to your opinion. And I'm entitled to my facts. And the facts are that the Republican Party has made a calculation that they do not need black votes, at least no more than 20% nationwide for any presidential election and whatever the calculation is per state or congressional district. But they've made the calculation that we're going to disenfranchise eight out of every 10 black voters, if possible. And if they do that, then they can maintain control of state legislatures, governor's mansions, the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, and the presidency. And even in states where, you know, in these major cities, where even if we if we have control of the state legislature and all that, then we can just take away or take over cities and school districts and all this other stuff. You know, Ron DeSantis showed you that when he took over even the positions that weren't elected, right? He just took over a college and decided to redo the image of the college from being a true liberal arts college to now a college where basically Prager U 
It's going to be the curriculum, right? That that mindset. And I have I and for the record, I've invited the guy that's over the the board of trustees at New College. Um, they declined to come on. And but the invitation is still there. Because I think people need to understand what your mindset is. And this is a show where you can say what you want to say. You know, I mean, it's my show, so I can pick the time to rebut anything you say if I disagree with it. But you can say what you want to say. And I, and I'm, I stress that a lot because I think what people need to understand in this discourse is that when you get to express your truth, then people can decide whether they want to support it or not. And my, my bet is that once people hear your truth and people hear my truth or people that think like me, they're going to side with us, right? And, you know, it is what it is come election time. That's the gamble that we take every time the Democrats and Republicans go against each other, right? And then there's other people that have other thoughts. That's why we have a Libertarian Party. That's why we have a Green Party, right? Because there are people that have maybe a different angle toward what you see with Democrats and Republicans. That's how a democracy is supposed to work. Put your ideas out there and let the people decide. And if they choose somebody other than you, accept the results. That's why we're in the situation in Georgia. That's why we're in the situation in D.C. That's why we're in the situation in Florida. And to an extent, why we're in the situation in New York. You can't cheat people out of their democracy and think that you can get away with it, right? We're looking at Tennessee right now. So, you know, they kicked the two black representatives, the two Justins out, and the people put them back in, <laughs> right, in the special election. They went through the process. The county commissioners made them their own replacements, and then in the special elections, the people in their districts reelected them, right? So now they've gone to special sessions supposedly to deal with the gun issue, but then when they get there, they don't want to deal with guns. They want to deal with destroying democracy. So basically, if you have a committee meeting in Tennessee, this, this will break it down real simply. If there's a committee meeting at the Tennessee Capitol, you can go there with your gun. You can go there, whether it's a pistol, you know, uh, you know, whether it's a Glock uh, or a, a handgun or, or AR-15 or whatever. You can go to the meeting with your gun, right? But don't you dare bring a sign that'll show any kind of political bias one way or the other. Now you can get a, you can bring a gun, but you can't bring a sign. I literally saw a white woman get arrested for holding up a sign 
imploring the state legislature in Tennessee to do something about guns. So she got arrested, but there were people in that room that had handguns on them, and they were fine. They were not considered a threat. Now, mind you, this is the same state, even prior to the Justins, that when they talked about implementing an income tax <laughs> in that state, people literally came to that building and damaged it, right? That was, you know, I know a lot of people all caught up with the what happened on January 6, 2021, but prior to that, we saw many demonstrations and that's maybe where they got the idea when people were upset about them imposing income tax in Tennessee and these folks stormed that Capitol building and did damage to it. Now, fortunately, the legislature wasn't in session at the time, but that happened. So, you know, so you could, you, the, what is happening in Tennessee now has been brewing for a while. As most of this stuff, has been brewing for a while, and now it's come to a head where its titular leader, its its icon, and him calling self proclaiming himself to be a martyr for that movement. Uh, now that we've got all these indictments and a possible chance of that individual running for president and being the Republican nominee again so all this stuff has been brewing and it's something that's been in America's DNA for a long time but ever since Barack Obama took that oath of office on January 20 of 2009 it's been building at a crescendo pace and hopefully we have reached the climax of that and and we can start seeing a decrease if people show the courage to defeat it. Right? But I'm asking a lot. You know, but I'm, I'm just joining the chorus of other black people, black voices out there that are saying, we've pretty much let you know how we feel about that. And so it's up to the white community to do something. It's up to white Americans to decide which direction they want to go. Do they want to allow their fellow white Americans to keep pushing this idea of supremacy and institutional racism and all this stuff? Or are they going to do something about it? Because we're going we're gonna to be resilient. We're going to offer resistance. We're going to stand up against it. That's our commitment because, again, we have made a commitment that America is going to live up to its creed, <clears throat> that all men are created equal, right? And you know, and make sure that the rights that have been endowed to us of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness are carried forth. We're committed to that. We're not backing down from that any way, shape, or form. I don't care, 
you know, you got these black folks that got nigger for Trump t-shirts on. And yeah, I said it because that's the t-shirt he had on. You can have these talking heads out here and all that stuff, and that's fine, right? You know, every everybody's got their <laughs> characters, every, every ethnic group. Black thought is not monolithic, but the majority of us are going to fight for our rights. The majority of us are going to fight against supremacy. And again, despite what Tim Scott thinks we're going to fight the bear that he can't see let's put it that way so you know we we're we're in this process now on the legal side and it's going to take some time it's not going to be overnight it's not going to be fast uh but it's going to be efficient and effective the question becomes do we even want to take a chance on having a convicted felon in the White House? You know, if it was a black man, there wouldn't be any debate about it. <laughs> but since it's a white guy, the question needs to be posed. Do we want to have a convicted felon in the White House? I say no, especially since the felonies were basically geared toward trying to keep them there in the first place, right? But nonetheless, that's just where I am. Uh, y'all keep listening to the podcast. Y'all keep, you know, raising your voices. Y'all keep reading these good books that are out here, educating yourself, and and just keep spreading the word, man. Uh, our day is coming. Our day is coming. Some of us may not see it in our lifetime, but it's coming. If we have children, then we have hope that it'll be in their lifetime. But it's coming. And all we can do is do our part to push the envelope to make it so. Until next time. <laughs>